0: 4, Mark chapter 4, I have my Bible, but there's stuff in front of it, all right, here we go. Why do people reject the gospel? Why do people reject the gospel message? Why do people reject the kingdom of God? Why, as we read the book of Mark, do we see Jesus going around preaching and teaching the gospel faithfully, perfectly, preaching the righteousness of God, preaching the kingdom of God, only to see everyone rejecting it? Why is it that we can share the gospel with a hundred people, and perhaps at the end of it all, maybe one of them may end up believing it? Is it because you have to be really dumb to believe the gospel and everyone's just kind of too smart for this nonsense? Are people too smart for the spiritual mumbo-jumbo of angels and demons, of death and resurrection, heaven and hell? Well, I don't think so. Although Christianity does thrive amongst the lowly people of the world, including the intellectually lowly, some of the smartest people throughout history have believed the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these very wildly intelligent people saw no conflict between their intellect and their faith. In fact, we need not even dig down deep into the annals of history in order to find people who were really, really smart and yet who still believed the gospel. Off the top of my head, I can think of three people in this church who are smarter than myself who believe the gospel and who feel no qualms about it, who don't feel like they have to shut off their mind in order to exercise their faith. Well, perhaps you have to be really, really smart to believe the gospel. Maybe it's not that people are so dumb that they're believing it. Maybe it's just you have to be really, really smart. Maybe you have to have a raw, natural intelligence, which has also been fed by the best of the Ivy League private schools that America has to offer, a Harvard by way of Anover sort of thing. Well, I think that's unlikely. The world is full of Christians who are wildly intelligent, but there's also a bunch of Christians who are not particularly intelligent. And I'm trying not to stop looking at anyone in the audience as I say that but even the most unintelligent among us are smart enough to recognize intellectuals who are too smart for their own good when it comes to matters of faith. Maybe you just need the right training in order to believe the gospel. The right training. Well, I think the answer to such a proposition must be no. If a rigorous training, even a rigorous theological training, or what one needed in order to believe uh, the gospel in Jesus, his greatest enemies would not have been scribes and Pharisees, whose whole lives were dedicated to reading and studying the scriptures of God. And if that were the case, so many seminaries would not be churning out heresy by the barrelful. As we've studied the book of Mark, we've seen that very few people are accepting what Jesus is preaching and teaching. The religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, and they are lying about him. The crowds are indecisive, and they do tend to favor Jesus, but only when it's advantageous to them. Otherwise, it's pretty clear that their hearts are hard and fickle. Even Jesus' own family misunderstands him, and when they don't misunderstand him, they doubt him. And when they don't doubt him, they think that he's crazy, that he's lost his mind, and that they need to go rescue him irony of all ironies. Jesus' preaching has elicited elicited enough hate in the heart of some of his hearers as to cause them to plot his death, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 6. Do you ever wonder why your evangelism isn't bearing any fruit? Well, perhaps you're a bad evangelist. I don't know that. But, Even Jesus had mixed results as he went about scattering the seed of God's Word. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who perfectly communicated truth, perfect truth, communicated perfectly, and perfect love, and yet he was still largely rejected. Rejected more than he was accepted. Functioning almost as an apologetic, as a defense, as to why Jesus' ministry isn't bearing any fruit. Jesus tells a parable to those who are gathered around him, which includes the disciples. And he's teaching the disciples and all those gathered around him the reason why his seed is not being received by the masses. I mean, if Jesus really is the Son of God, wouldn't you expect that whenever Jesus spoke truth, people would simply believe it? Isn't that kind of a logical connection you would tend to make in your brain? Wouldn't you assume that it would be God's will that everyone who hears Jesus' words would believe Jesus' words? Wouldn't you assume that God would want all of them to turn and to be forgiven when they hear Jesus' words? Well, maybe that's why the wise among us tell us that it's best not to assume. In today's sermon, I want to ask us a series of questions and then I want us to look at the text together to find the answers. Note takers, here you are, four questions. Question number one, what is a parable? Question number two, what is the purpose of a parable? Question number three, what is Jesus intending to teach in the parable of the sower that we're studying today? And question number four, Why does Jesus want to keep his truth hidden from some, but not others? Well, let's read the text together. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables, and in his teaching he said to them, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold 30, 30 and 60-fold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside Everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear... Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word, and it is perfectly useful for our lives. Amen? So, question number one. What is a parable? Well, a parable is simply a form of illustration. It's setting one thing that's less clear besides another thing that's more clear in order to clarify the thing that's less clear. A parable combines the power of story with the imagery of a metaphor and the simplicity of lessons from everyday life. And what this does is it allows the world's best teachers, Jesus included, to make difficult concepts easy to understand. Parables allow teachers to take difficult concepts and make them easy to understand. Parables tend to have one central point. One main idea, to read spiritual significance into every detail of every parable is probably not helpful. It's to treat it as an allegory. You remember the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, the allegory. C.S. Lewis in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe packs meaning into every last detail of a story. That's not the, really the way a parable works. A parable has one central point, and oftentimes, the extraneous details of a parable are merely meant to illuminate or to contribute to that main point. Not every detail of today's parable is meant to be a spiritual lesson. Some of the details could be significant, but they could also mean nothing, finding significance only in the way that they help us to understand the main point of Jesus' parable. It's pretty common for teachers to hold Jesus up as their standard in communication. And when they do that, they cite his frequent use of parables as a model for how pastors and teachers should bring the cookies down to the bottom shelf, making difficult truths easier to understand by way of illustration. Well, I certainly think that we should do that. As a matter of fact, I often do that. As a matter of fact, I just did that. (laughs) Bringing the cookies down to the bottom shelf. You see how I did that there? This is like Inception. I'm trying to take the difficult concept and bring it down so that you can grasp it like a child does cookies out of a cookie jar. It's pretty potent. But what if I told you that Jesus' main reason for using parables was not to make the truth more accessible, but to obscure it? Which leads us to question number two. What is the purpose of a parable? We know what a parable is. Well, what is the purpose of a parable? While parables are generally used to help people better, better understand difficult concepts, Jesus himself does not seem to be using these parables for that purpose. It's quite the opposite, actually. Jesus claims to be using parables to prevent understanding, to conceal Spiritual truth to obscure rather than to reveal. I'm not making this up. Look at verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those with those around him, with the 12, asked him about the parables. So, hey Jesus, what's going on here? We don't understand. Verse 11, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Why is it in parables? So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was teaching the parable to a large crowd, people gathered around him. But then we see here that the disciples, being present for his teaching, didn't understand what Jesus was teaching. And so when they get a chance to be alone with Jesus, they try to rectify the confusion. So they say, Jesus, what's the meaning of the parable? Notice the way Jesus responds. He doesn't say, oh, hey, you silly disciples. How do you not get this? I just took a really difficult concept and I put it in the form of a parable, which is an illustration from your everyday life, and I made it easier for you to understand. Why don't you get it? Rather, Jesus says, to you has been given the secret But for those on the outside, everything is in parables. He says that in verse 11. So Jesus says that there are two groups of people here. Those on the inside and those on the outside. If you read your Bibles carefully, you'll find out that this is not the first time this happens. There's always people on the inside and always people on the outside. And it's by design, not by accident. Those on the inside have the secret. That is, they have Jesus, the one who reveals the secret. They have the key to understanding the parable. We see in verses 13 through 20 that Jesus explains the parable to this little group. We don't understand. I'll explain it to you. That's the key to understanding. That is how they can understand the secret. But there is another group a group that's not the inside group, a group that does not have access to the secret. They are on the outside. And verse 11 says, For those on the outside, everything is in parables. Well, why is it in parables? Verse 12 explains, That they may indeed see but not perceive, and indeed hear but not understand. See but not perceive. Hear but not understand. Quite simply, Jesus teaches that those on the outside are taught parables in order to conceal the truth from them. Now, I know this may be a bit of shock to you if you've not read your Bible carefully or if you've never even considered why Jesus teaches in parables or if you've never even read Mark chapter 4 before. Parables, in and of themselves, at least the way that Jesus uses them, are not windows through which we might more easily see the truth. Rather, they are like doors that bar us from the truth. For the outsiders, at least. So, the answer to number two, to the second question is, in Jesus' own words, and at least in his own ministry, is that parables are meant to conceal the truth from people to whom Jesus has chosen to not reveal it. Question three. What is Jesus intending to teach in this parable? Many excellent sermons have been preached on the way that Satan can come along and steal the word from the heart of man. Or the way that riches and cares of the world and persecution and suffering can choke out the word. Or the way that our hearts can have no root for the word to grow up into. But I think that all these details are merely being used in this parable to highlight a deeper truth, which is the main point of this parable. The point of Jesus' parable is this. God's Word only bears fruit in regenerate hearts. God's Word only bears fruit in regenerate hearts. Or said another way, the truth of God's Word cannot be received by hearts that have not been born again. Or said in a third way, the seed of God's Word can only survive in a heart that has good soil, that has been made new. And Jesus is telling this story to explain why people aren't receiving his word, his evangelism, his preaching of the kingdom of God. In this parable, the seed is the word of God, which makes the soil the heart. Mark doesn't explicitly say that, but we know from Luke and Matthew's account of the same parable that the soil is the heart. So the image that we have is a farmer who's going out to the field and he's sowing the seed of God's Word into the hearts of men, into the soil. Some of it falls along the path as he sows out to the very edge of his field. A farmer lives off of his crop and so he's not going to leave six inches of his field untended. He throws the seed all the way out to the edge of the field. Now, some of that seed as it's being cast out to the edges may fall along the path outside of the ground that's been tilled and plowed that path is hard soil some of the seed falls among the thorny area that the farmer has been trying to remove for quite some time but maybe he just hasn't gotten all the thorns out if you've never farmed before this may not make much sense to you but it's incredibly difficult to get all of the things that would stop a plant from growing out of the natural soil. So it's likely that as a farmer plants his seed in the ground, there are still some parts of the soil that have thorns in them that are not conducive for seed growing. Some of the seed falls among the thorny area, that the, uh, excuse me, amongst the rocky area, where maybe he didn't plow well enough to get all the rocks out. The point is, the farmer has more than enough seed, but he does not have enough land. So he's not concerned about wasting seed as he throws it. He throws it everywhere in the field. He throws it along the edge where it, some of it may fall along the hard path. He throws it in the areas where there may be rocks. He throws it in the areas where there may be thorns. He throws it anywhere in the hopes that the seed will take root and produce a maximal harvest. So as Jesus explains the parable to his disciples, he begins with a seed that falls along the path. The path would have had hard soil. Soil so hard that the seed would merely rest on top of it rather than go down into it. And such seed, says Jesus in verse 15, is easily stolen by Satan. The way we might think about such soil today is when we talk to people and we say stuff like, "Goes one in one ear and out the other, or it rolled off of them like water off of a duck's back. Right? It just doesn't even penetrate, not even a little bit. You guys see how I just used an illustration there? A parable? All right. The hearer's heart, the soil, the hearer's heart, is so bad that the word doesn't penetrate even a little bit. This hard, bad soil is incapable of receiving God's word. The next seed falls on the rocky ground, where the seed is unable to take root. Maybe you've known someone like this. Maybe even in the life of this church, we've seen people who seem to be kind of getting interested in spiritual things. They start coming around more often. It seems like there's something happening. But then as soon as life gets a little difficult, as soon as their girlfriend or boyfriend tries to draw them back into sexual sin, as soon as they come to realize what it really costs to follow Christ, they fall away. Showing, That the heart is not good soil. The next seed is received again. uh, Excuse me, the next seed is received, but again, it's only received in a way that shows that it's not really received at all. It's choked out by worldliness. In a world where Satan is trying to tempt everyone all the time to look away from Christ and to look towards things of this world, Satan is offering everything shiny to every person in order to distract them from the beauty of Jesus Christ. We've known many people like this, people that we thought had received the seed of Christ, but who end up producing no other fruit than the fruit of unrighteousness. Now, the key to understanding this parable is in verse 20. We've looked at three different kinds of soil, but in verse 20 we see the fourth and most important soil, and it reads... But those, the seeds, that were sown on the good soil, on the good soil, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. They can hear and accept because the soil of their hearts is primed to receive in a way that thorny soil rocky soil and hard soil is not the difference between the seed of God's word bearing fruit or bearing no fruit has everything to do with the quality of the soil that the seed falls on some people believe that all soil is equal that all the hearts of all human beings are capable of accepting God's truth and bearing fruit but friends nothing could be further from the truth We see here that there are four different kinds of hearts, and only one is capable of receiving. The reason why you can share the gospel a thousand times and only have one convert has nothing to do with the quality of the seed, but everything to do with the quality of the heart of the hearer of God's word. Know this. The vast majority of the people that you share the gospel with have bad hearts the Bible talks about the state of humans after the fall as having dead hearts as having hard hearts as having blind hearts here today in the text we talk about ears to hear and eyes to see but ear and eye is just a metaphorical way of talking about the heart the thing which is able to receive the truth and it's obvious that people do not have ears to hear They do not have eyes to see. They do not have hearts that have been tilled to receive the the Word of God. The Bible says that some will receive the Word, but only if they have a heart that's able to receive it. And it talks about this in a number of ways. John chapter 3 talks about it in terms of being born again. The Bible talks about scales being removed from your eyes, that you might finally be able to see and savor Jesus Christ. Ephesians talks about dead people being raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. No matter how you talk about it, the same truth is presented. God must do a work in man's heart in order for His Word to produce fruit in that man's heart. And make no mistake, friends, it is God who is doing the work. It is God who turns a bad heart into a good one. He breaks up the stony heart. He gives it life. He makes it a heart of flesh. You can't give yourself a new heart. And you only have two options. Option number one is you say that my heart's not bad and that I don't need a new heart. Or option number two, you say, I do have a bad heart and I can't fix it myself. Imagine, imagine the soil extricating its own thorns. Imagine the soil removing all the rocks from itself and throwing it outside of the field. Imagine the soil fixing and adjusting its own pH balance. It's ridiculous. Most of the people who are broken or who are lost or who are dead in sin don't even know that they are. How can you even begin to know that there needs to be a change in your heart? The truth that God must give men new hearts, able to receive the truth of God's Word, is incredibly important for us as a church. It was important for Jesus. This parable is Jesus' way of explaining the rejection of His Word. He's going around preaching, teaching, perfectly. And people are rejecting Him. He's doing it in perfect love. And they're rejecting Him. They're abandoning Him. They're trying to kill Him. They're denying Him. They're accusing Him. They're lying about Him. They're misunderstanding Him because their hearts aren't capable of doing anything else. Jesus says, you can't receive me, not just that you won't receive me. Jesus says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, who has ears to hear? No one. It's not like we're all walking around with our ears out ready to receive God's truth. The only ones that understand Jesus are the ones that Jesus has graciously chosen to give the ability to hear. Everyone is blind. Everyone is deaf in their sin. But Jesus does open the eyes of some. Everyone that Jesus preaches to has the same ears. Ears. That is, they have the same basic human ability to receive information, to comprehend language, and other forms of communication. But there's something about some ears that allows them to actually believe the truth that they're hearing. There's something about some hearts that allow it to receive the seed of God's word, where other hearts do not. And it cannot be that that heart fixed itself. Note also, that just because people can't hear doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't still command them to listen. Look at verse 3 again. Listen. Listen. A couple verses later, Jesus is going to say, hey, everyone can't hear me. That doesn't stop him from telling everyone in that crowd that you need to hear me. Listen. It's a command. Jesus says, I'm requiring this of you. I'm here as your Lord, and I'm telling you to listen to me. At the end of verse 9, he says it again. Pay attention. But later Jesus says that not everyone can actually hear. Jesus commands things that people cannot fulfill. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 8 and verses 45 through 47, where he says, "Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Let that sit on you for a second. Jesus says that people do not receive him because he tells them the truth. Why? Because dead men don't love truth. Sinners don't want truth. Sinners aren't able to receive the truth. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And here's his answer in verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. Whoever is of God, hears. Not hears like you're hearing me right now, but hears and believes, hears with their heart, hears as in receives and produces fruit. Whoever is of God, whoever has new soil, (coughs) such is the one who hears God's word and receives it. And then Jesus finishes in John 8 by saying, the reason why you do not hear is that you are not of God. What does all this mean for us as we live our lives? Well, there are a few practical implications other than the fact that it's just important that we understand how evangelism should function with human hearts. And we should rightly understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. On top of that, we should remember this parable as we share truth with people who reject it. We all know people who can stare truth right in the face and call it a lie. We all know people who can stare up at the blue sky and call it green, or stare at this blue carpet and call it, you know, brown. We all know people, if all it took was clever logic and rhetoric, Uh, every person who follows Russell on Facebook will be converted right now. Every person who could articulate a clear argument from Scripture would be the greatest evangelist in the world. But we know that that's not the case. You can show someone perfectly A to B to C, therefore D, and they will say, I don't see it, I disagree, I refuse to believe it. You can sit down with someone with an open Bible and try to show them the plain reading of Scripture and they may not receive it. And that may not have anything to do with the way that you're sharing it. Now, to be sure, we ought to make sure that we are communicating in a way that doesn't make people not want to listen to us. We should also make sure that we are actually communicating the truth, not just what we assume to be the truth. But assuming that we have communicated the truth, and assuming that we have communicated the truth well, we should know that just like our Master The odds of our truth being received by dead men is slim to none unless the Holy Spirit does a good work in their heart. Here's another practical takeaway from today's sermon. Preach the Word. Sean, I'm not a preacher. Okay, teach the Word. Sean, I'm not a teacher. Okay, share the Word, communicate the Word, and whatever field God has given you, Share the word of God. Preach the gospel. Do the good work of evangelism. Sow seeds. There's enough gospel to spare. You can preach the gospel all day, every day, until Jesus comes back, and you are not going to run out of the seed of God's word. Don't be a miser with your seed. Sow it everywhere. Sow it in the rocky ground. Sow it in the thorny area. Sow it towards the edges of the field, where some of it may fall along the path. Sow it on the path directly. Who knows where the Lord may cause a harvest to grow up? Throw the seed to anyone who is listening or who even seems to be listening. Anyone who has ears, anyone who has eyes, sow the seed. You're not God. You don't know if someone has ears to hear. You don't know if someone has eyes to see. You don't have an x-ray machine to look inside their hearts and to see if they have good soil or bad soil. That's not what God's commanding of you to do. God's commanding of you to preach, to teach, to share the gospel. You've been given a swath of land and an infinite supply of seed. So sow it everywhere. Who among us have we not given the word to? How many of us have put ourselves in the place of God, assuming that such and such a person surely wouldn't believe the gospel? or they surely wouldn't be responsive to my evangelism. They wouldn't believe, I'm not going to waste my time, or I'm afraid, or I'm embarrassed. You don't know. Look at the people in this room. Russell Berger was trained by his father to be a devout atheist. He was trained before going to school every day to go argue with his schoolmates and debunk Christianity. And now the Lord is using him mightily. Every person who knew me before I got saved said that I was going to end up dead or in prison. Every single person. And because of that, a lot of people did not share the gospel with me. But someone did. And look where we are now. I'm guilty of this too. But Jesus pictures himself and subsequently every faithful evangelist as a farmer who does not discriminate in his seed sowing. Black, white, yellow, doesn't matter. Rich, poor, sow your seed. Young, old, sow your seed. Introvert, extrovert, sow your seed. Lost in the worst, most grotesque kinds of sin, sow your seed. They seem like they have their life perfectly together because they have a house at Point Mallard and a trophy wife and a two-car garage with three golden retrievers and their 401k is full to the brim. And you think, well, they don't think that they need Jesus. Sow the seed. You never know what God may be doing in the heart of someone as you do your part to be faithful in evangelism. Final question. Why does Jesus want to keep his truth hidden from some, but not others? Jesus does give us one reason. It's in verse 12, where we read, Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, but that just leads to another question. Why wouldn't Jesus want them to be forgiven? This is actually a quotation from Isaiah, where the Lord says the same thing as He's sending Isaiah to go preach to the people of Israel. And He says, go and preach, but just so you know, they're not going to listen. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. But you go and you go preach my word to them. And in Isaiah, he says the same thing. This is a quotation from Isaiah. Lest they turn, lest they be forgiven. I think there's an answer here, but I want to channel my inner politician. And I want to answer your question by asking you a question. Will you receive the answer? Will you receive it? Jesus, why don't you want everyone to turn and be forgiven? At least on the face of it, that's what it seems to be saying. What if Jesus gives you an answer that you can't accept? What if there's a tension and a mystery in the faith of God, in the gospel, where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility hang tight in the balance? Are you okay with that? Can you live with that? Even if you don't know why Jesus does what he does the way that he does it, can you still worship him and believe him and obey his truth? I remember the first time I read a certain chapter in the Bible, it really messed me up. It really messed me up. There were some questions about fairness, about righteousness, about the judgment of God, and Paul didn't give an answer. And so I stopped reading my Bible but I knew I'm either going to believe the God of the Bible and worship Him as He's revealed to Himself, or I'm not going to worship any God at all. Is that your attitude? Are you willing to wrestle with God to believe Him and to worship Him and to obey Him, even if you don't understand the deep complexities of every aspect of the Gospel? They say that millennials need to know the why of a thing more than any other generation. I don't know if that's accurate. The book of Job makes me think that perhaps it's not. But I know that there is an impulse in all of us to reject that which we can't fully understand. Let me encourage you to receive what Jesus is teaching this morning. Regardless of whether or not you can figure it all out. Regardless of whether or not whether or not even if you like what he's saying. You know, it stands that if Jesus is God and that you're a sinner, he's going to say some stuff that confronts you that you're not going to like. And at that point, your options are love him, serve him, obey him, and receive him, even if it's hard, even if I don't understand, even if I have to work through this, or reject him. But you should also know that Jesus doesn't intend to keep these hidden things hidden forever. That's the purpose of the lamp illustration that we read from verses 21 through 22. Let's read it again. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. You see that? Jesus says, yes, it is hidden, but one day it will be made manifest. Yes, it is secret, but one day it will be revealed. Do the mysteries of God trouble you? Let me encourage you to read and study scripture where I think you can find answers to many of the questions that you may have, including about today's text. Jesus says in verse 24, pay attention to what you have heard or to what you hear. Maybe you're sitting in the pew right now and you're wondering, is Jesus obscuring the truth from me? Well, if you are hearing and you are understanding, and you are believing? The answer to that is obviously no. Jesus is illuminating your heart. He's giving you the ability to hear and to understand. So keep listening. Keep hearing. Because Jesus says the more you pay attention, the more you're going to grasp. That's what he means when he says with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you but also let me encourage you to remember that there are some things that you will not understand until you get to heaven. You're not God. The secret things belong to the Lord. And it's good that they do. Because there are some things that our our tiny, puny, finite brains would explode if we tried to comprehend. I said that we were done with the questions, but I want to pull my preacher card and sneak one more in on you. Las Villas will have to wait. What does Jesus mean in verse 13 when he asks, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Well, some have understood Jesus to be saying that there is something special about this parable, that there's a hidden key of interpretation of sorts, that if you can just unlock the magical key of this parable then you'll have everything that you need to be able to understand all the, I think it's 64, 65 other parables of Jesus. It's like a universal key, a cheat code of sorts. You unlock this level, you get them all. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think what he means is this. If you can't understand this parable, you can't understand any parable because you don't have ears to understand. You don't have eyes to see. You don't have ears to hear. You don't have a heart that's capable of receiving truth. If you don't understand this, how can you understand anything? Because your understanding tool, your understander, your heart, your ear, your eye, whatever you want to call it, it's broken. It's dead in sin. (coughs) It's incapable of understanding. How can you understand this? Why don't you understand this parable? If you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand any of them. That's because what you need is a heart from God to be able to understand the truth of God. The Spirit of God discerns the things of God, says Paul in the book of Romans. Said another way, the reason why this parable can't be understood is the same reason why all parables can't be understood. Because only those with ears to hear can understand. The reason why Jesus, excuse me, the reason why the disciples end up understanding this parable isn't because they figured it out. It's because Jesus graciously explains to them. They have, through Jesus, been given ears to hear. To them, the secret has been revealed. In Jesus' ministry, we see both a veiling and an unveiling. Even in His incarnation, we see Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God of the universe, coming down in human flesh as the fullest and final form of revelation coming down and revealing what God is like to us, but we also see the fullness of God wrapped up in flesh, hidden in some aspects. Jesus is both revealing God and concealing God in some ways. The same is true of Jesus' parables. They are both a revelation of truth and a concealing of truth. Jesus' parables require no special knowledge, no special vocabulary, No special training to be understood. The only thing that they require is ears to hear, and only Jesus can give you that. The Father knows the truth about Jesus. Jesus obviously knows the truth about Himself. Even the demons, as we've been going through the book of Mark, know the truth about Jesus. But what about you? How are you responding to Jesus? Is Jesus' word landing on your heart? And if so, how is it landing? Do you think it's taking root? Only to end up turning as soon as things get hard in the near future? Perhaps you're starting to feel the thorns of the world crowding God's word and killing that seed. How you respond to the word of Jesus Christ is of eternal significance how you respond, how you receive, what happens in your heart with the word of God will either be eternally rewarding or eternally damning for every single human being. And all of this entirely depends on whether or not you have ears to hear. But Sean, how am I supposed to respond when it's possible that Jesus hasn't given me ears to hear? I understand the question but Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to try to figure out if they have ears to hear he just tells them to listen when he commissions us to go preach the gospel he doesn't say examine the soil he says throw the seed on the soil let God handle the rest You don't have to worry about whether or not you've got good soil or bad soil. All you need to worry about is right now, God's word, the seed of God's word is being thrown at you. Are you going to receive it right here, right now? That's the only question that matters. There's one thing that's certain. All those who repent and believe Will continue to repent and believe. All those who repent and believe have ears to hear the word of Christ. And those who repent and believe and continue to repent and believe have received the word on good soil. So, what about you? Are you repenting? Are you turning from sin? Are you turning from worldliness? Are you turning from the lust of the flesh and the pride of life? Are you turning away from Satan, from all the things of darkness? Are you repenting of your sins? Are you trusting Christ? Are you trusting Christ? Do you see Christ? Do you savor Christ as beautiful? Is your hope in Christ? If it's not, don't delay. Today is the day. Turn from your sins and turn from Christ. And if you have any question about what that looks like, I'd encourage you to find me after the service or turn to any one member of this church, that, the nearest one that you can grab, and ask these sorts of questions because we'd love to talk with you about it. Let me pray. Father, we, we recognize these truths in all of humility knowing that uh, any of us who are here today, who are repenting and believing in your Son, Jesus Christ, are only doing so by your grace. Thank you for giving us ears to hear individually, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear as a church. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be faithful seed sowers in this city and anywhere else that you may have us to go, for the glory of your name and for the good of your elect.